We are delighted to be joined by author and Nine Marks editorial director, Jonathan Lehman. Welcome to Exposit Word, Jonathan. Hey, thank you, David. Glad to be here. Before we talk about your new book, One Assembly, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. As you said, I'm the editorial director for Nine Marks, which is a ministry aimed at pastors focused on building healthy churches. Learn more at ninemarks.org. Uh, I'm an elder, uh, a non-staff elder, we call them, at Chevrolet Baptist Church in Chevrolet, Maryland. Chevrolet is a suburb of Washington, D.C. So if you if you leave Washington and head eastward towards Annapolis, Chevrolet is the first suburb when you cross the district line. I'm married to Shannon, have four daughters, and yeah, that's a nutshell. I became a Christian in my early 20s. Grew up in a Christian home, but became a Christian in my early 20s, and I've been grateful to serve the Lord uh, in a number of ways since then. Yeah, brilliant. So you must work with Mes McConnell, is that right? We do. We partner some. Uh, he has done a series of books for Nine Marks that we've been really grateful for. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, what, what they call the First Step series, like Bible, Can We Trust It, and other ones for, for, for new Christians. He's done that with us. He'll often speak at our events and... Occasionally, he'll invite some of our people to speak at his events. So, yeah, very grateful for him. That's brilliant. Uh, great stuff. So, when did you decide that you wanted to write a book about the multi-site church model? <laughs> um, I don't know if I decided to. I was kind of <laughs> voluntold by my boss to write it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, it's a, that's not entirely true. It, it, it has been a growing, growing interest of mine over the last decade, really. Partly just through my study of scripture partly uh, through conversations with Mark Dever and others, and then partly through just my experience of healthy, wonderful churches, a couple of them that mm-hmm. have been one assembly, one service, one site, and just seeing the vibrancy that lends itself to our discipleship, again, combined with the conversations, combined with my study of scripture. Over the last decade, I'd say, it was sort of, sort of the genesis of this project. Yeah, great and stuff. the book itself, I probably worked on for several years, on and off, finally came out a few months ago. Yeah, great. So tell us all about the book, then. Well, it makes the argument that there is no such thing as a multi-site or multi-service church. That, in fact, you know, we recognize those as legal entities, sure, uh, but in fact, what your 11 o'clock and your 9 o'clock services are, are separate churches, yeah. biblically defined. And what your East Campus and your West Campus are, biblically defined, are separate churches, albeit under one, you might say, administrative structure. And it's that administrative structure combining the multi-site campuses, which are actually called a church. But that's not what the Bible says a church is. In the Bible, a church is an assembly. It's it's more than an assembly, but it's not less than an assembly. And uh, so I... Oh, I, I make that argument both lexically, exegetically, theologically. I talk about intuitions. I talk about alternatives, that sort of thing. So your book investigates two different church models, multi-site and multi-service. Why did you decide to tackle Correct. both of these at the same time? Because effectively, though they're different in some ways, and though they have different pastoral implications and different discipleship implications for the Christian life, they are, in this regard, the same thing. They mm. divide the assembly. One divides it chronologically, one divides it spatially, geographically. And in that regard, they call these divided assemblies, A, in the singular, church. And in both cases, I'm saying that's not biblical. Yeah, sure. So what's your biggest concern with with this model then, Jonathan? 
Well, it's hard to say what's my biggest concern. I mean, I would say several concerns. One, you're just, you're, 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 you're not following what the Bible says a church is a church. So, so the first, first, first concern you could say is, is unbiblical. Mm. Uh, of course, I have to unpack that. Does that mean I'm saying it's sin? Am I saying it's just irregular? We, we could, we could double click there, single click, whatever there if you want. Yeah. So number one, it's not biblical. Number two, I would say that therefore impacts Christian discipleship. Mm. Here's, here's a link people, Christians uh, often miss. Your, your church structures, your church government affects Christian discipleship mm. in a multitude of ways. And uh, when you move from the single assembly to the multiple assembly, whether geographically or chronologically, you are impacting Christian discipleship and what the church is at a very DNA level. See, here's the thing. People are quick to say, oh, it's kind of a peripheral issue. And I get it. It is a peripheral issue on the one hand. And let me just quickly affirm my partnership in the gospel with brothers and sisters who attend multi-site, multi-service churches. My parents go to a multi-service church. I love my parents. I think we share the gospel. So this is not like a big fight around the family dinner table, and I don't want it to be a big fight with you either if you're a multi-site or multi-service guy. But I still think this is going to impact Christian discipleship. It impacts what the nature of the church is, uh, and therefore it's worth something worth Christians talking about. So if, if a multi-site pastor pushed back, Jonathan, and said, yeah, well, you know, we've we've got... The, the the right number of deacons and elders in place to be able to, you know, steward the church well, and we, you know we we we're, we're confident that we are discipling people in the right way. How would you answer that? I would say, insofar as you are, and insofar as you're according to biblical mandates, wonderful, praise God, and I just want to rejoice at all the good things evangelistically and in terms of discipleship that you're doing. Okay, so number one, affirmation. Number two, I'm going to say, yeah, but there might be a couple places where. <laughs> You have chains on your legs as you're trying to get around this track as fast as you can. You have chains on your legs that I want to take off. You know, there, there are ways that your discipleship is hindered and your people's understanding of what it means to be the body of Christ yeah. is actually hindered more than you probably realize. Yeah. In your research, you said that you spent a couple of years um, looking into these models. Are there any case studies that sort of jump out in your memory? You know, honestly, in the book, I try to avoid the horror stories because I try not to make a pragmatic argument because mm -hmm. I can make a pragmatic argument like, well, look, when you do this, this is what happens. And then the multi-sider can come back and say, well, yeah, but I know single assembly churches yeah. Yeah. where when you do this, that happens. Yeah. Okay, fine. We can both play that game. So I think <laughs> the primary conversation we need to have is a biblical yeah. one. And also, when, when, you're, when, you're, when you're arguing with somebody or discussing something with somebody mm -hmm. you disagree, you, you kind of want to put them in the best light. So I can tell you horror stories. I can tell you about the senior pastor who says, hey, listen, we need to have multiple sites so that we're a quote-unquote legitimate church. Mm -hmm. For some reason, he found legitimacy as a church and as a pastor, some sort of ego problem, I don't know, in whether or not they had enough people building multiple services. Mm -hmm. I think that's vain. I think that's awful. But I, I, I don't know the man's heart. I don't want to get into that. And let me not represent multi-site according to those sorts of bad reasons. Let me look at that multi-site for its best reasons. Yeah. Why do people do multi-site? Well, they want to say it's evangelistic, right? Mm -hmm. They want to say if the building's full, we can't turn people away. And I get that. That's a good reason. I don't think you're choosing a biblical path in response to that reason, but I would affirm that and say, hey, that's good. And so I want to I want to represent people in their in their best ways. What are the biblical sort of reference points that you would go to in terms of what church should look like then? Yeah, sure. First, I would just say we have to look at the word ecclesia and how the word ecclesia, which we translate into English as church. Mm. We have to look at how the word ecclesia is used. So let's make a lexicon first of 
Conversation one is a lexical conversation throughout the New Testament. It's pretty common in academic studies these days to say the word ecclesia is used somewhat loosely, sometimes about assembly, sometimes not about an assembly. And I, I kind of go through all the different cities. I go to Corinth, I go to Rome, I go to Jerusalem, and I, I say, look, in every example that we can think of, you have the church gathering together. Yeah. Right. Now, there are instances in the words in which the word church is used and it doesn't have the assembly in mind. So, for instance, when Paul says in First Corinthians 2, to the church of God in Corinth, mm. is he talking about the assembly that's gathered or is he talking about the, pe- the, the, the people characterized by gathering? I think mm. it's the, the latter. He's talking to the, the people who I would say are characterized by gathering. But if I keep reading in Corinthians, and I see in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, he says, with your symbol together in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present, hand this man over. Or if I get to 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 11, and he says, uh, when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, it's not the supper you're actually eating. And then a little later, he says, wait for one another. And then if I look at chapter 14, and he talks about the assembly and the whole church coming together. And if I go to Romans 16, where he's, he's, he's writing from the church in Corinth, and he says, Gaius, and the whole church who meets in his house greets you. What does this teach me? These five different examples I just gave you. What do they teach me about the church in Corinth? They teach me that the whole church in Corinth yeah. gathers together. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean every time he's, he says the word church in the Corinthian correspondence, he's envisioning them in their gathered capacity. Uh, but it does mean the church becomes a church by gathering together. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what I argue, David, is it's sort of like the, the word we use in English team, mm-hmm. right? You and I can use the word team to talk about the, the the people who come together to play football, mm. right? Mm. But we can also refer to them as as the people, even if they're not gathered playing football. We could say that you know the, the team drove in separate cars to the stadium. Yeah. Well, they're not together, but they're the team. Yeah. But at the same time, we would say that if the team never got together to play football, they wouldn't be a team. Mm. To be a team, you got to get together and play football. Yeah. And the word church in the New Testament is used that way. Okay. All of that is the lexical argument. That's why I go through all the epistles and all the different cities and say, what do we see? Then I make another argument. I'll just. Let me say this in 15 seconds. I look at Matthew 18, verse 20, or 19 and 20, where Jesus talks about, uh, verse 24, two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, and we need to unpack that. What is he talking about? What is the gathering in his name there among? What's the significance of that? And I argue that uh, that's a prerequisite for a church being a church, to be gathered in his name. Yeah. Within your role of Nine Marks, obviously an, an organisation, a ministry that's so good in, in pointing out what a biblical church looks like. Um, tell us about that model and, and what Nine Marks actually does. Yeah, sure. Well, number one, we're trying to, our primary audience is pastors and church leaders in general. Our secondary audience would be the rest of the church. But we're trying to reach pastors and try to say, hey, listen, for, for decades now, ch- ch- uh, church leaders have been listening to Sort of best business practice books uh, and and other 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 forms of conventional wisdom books. We want to point you to the Bible. Uh, we actually think the Bible has a lot to say about growing being the church. Mm. And there's there's wisdom to be had in those other books, but let's not start there. Let's start in the Bible. And there's nine things that the organization emphasizes. Number one, expositional preaching. That's that's the water which gives life to the to the, to, to the soul and to, to the Christian, to the church, right? It's got to start with preaching the Bible. Number two, it's just not proof texting the Bible. A Mormon might open the Bible. Mm. No, it's, you, gotta, you have to have a biblical theology informing your understanding of the Bible. And number three, you have to have the gospel. And number four, right understanding of conversion. Yeah. I could keep going through the nine marks, but those are the things that we are saying, 
that to be a healthy church, these aren't the only things we could talk about, but these are nine things we want to talk about. It's not the nine marks, it's just nine marks of a healthy church that we want to talk about that we think so often go missing today. Sure. And and are you going to be adding a 10th mark at any point soon being single site, Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> That's, people have asked that. Um, we actually have had, added a... Uh, Oh gosh! Here, here, here's the here's the trade secrets. We're kind of adding a tenth and eleventh mark prayer and missions. Those weren't part of the original nine marks, but we're sort of rejigging the nine marks to keep it nine marks. But we're adding prayer and missions. I can explain further how we're doing that little abracadabra action. But yeah, see, that's the thing. It's not like we're pretty. You know, like you'll look at the nine marks and you won't see the ordinances. Yeah. Does that mean we don't think ordinances are important? Well, no. It's just that every church out there recognizes you need the ordinances and yeah. that's not a contested topic yeah. these nine things we we and two more adding prayer missions are things that have been contested mm. and, and therefore we're talking about them yeah sure how has our current culture impacted our view of a church oh gosh i mean that's in all sorts of ways and, and that's yeah. always been the case in the history of the church i mean we, we go back to we can talk go back to you know the myths and genealogies that paul's responding to in colossians that he's, he's exhorting timothy to you know, we, we could go to how you know, Roman structures uh, of empire impacted how, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church of the 4th and 5th centuries began to impact that themselves. We, we, you know, I've, I just taught a class of seminarians uh, in, in, in Zambia, and they talked to me about how very often churches have a, have a kind of lead pastor who's patterned after tribal chief. Or we could go to we could go to the churches in America in the 1950s and 60s and maybe Britain too I don't know you know in which they're padding their committee structures after the General Electric and Ford Motor Company general you know, uh, committee structures. Yeah. So th- th- this is a this is an age old problem for Christians, uh, letting the world shape them more than their attempt to shape themselves and then as an outgrowth of the world. Uh, these days, I think we have to be mindful uh, of everything from consumerism to individualism to commitment phobia uh, I, I think the way we view love is dramatically impacted by romanticism mm-hmm. and so forth uh, we could talk about tribalism in our churches we could talk about racism in our churches uh, they're, they're just you know pick, pick a topic and and, and uh, yeah. we could say oh goodness people of God read the Bible let that transform you yeah rather than letting but, but that's our job as pastors, isn't it? Yeah. Our, our, our job is people come in off the streets, as it were. They come yeah. in with their baggage, and we love them where they're at. Yeah. And why, that's why it's crucial for pastors to be aware of what's inside of that, that, those bags, inside of that luggage, yeah. that, that impacts how we think, impacts how we feel, how we love, what we're ambitious about, what we care about, how we morally evaluate. It's, a, it's important for us as pastors especially to have – a bead on what drives people in our time and location so that we can respond to it thoughtfully, respectfully with the word of God. Yeah, sure. When you wrote this book, I'm sure you didn't envisage launching it during the middle of a church lockdown and, you know, (laughs) a period of months where we've not gathered, you know, face to face. What would you say, Jonathan? I'm sure you've seen on social media and you've probably got friends of friends that you've seen come up on your timeline where people have become very comfortable have you know watching a church service in their pajamas whilst drinking a cup of you know hot chocolate and they become very comfortable what would you say to those people yeah. that you know have become a little bit too comfortable when they're actually questioning whether they're not going to whether they're actually going to go back yeah i'd say 
uh, don't cheat yourself. Mm. You, you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss out on the real thing. Mm. So, let's suppose you're quarantined from your wife for a while. And you get used to talking to her on Zoom. I, I hope you're not satisfied with that. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, I hope. Don't get too comfortable, buddy. Uh, I, I know you. I know you enjoy kind of single guy eating your dinner over the kitchen sink, you know, and not putting the toilet seat down sort of thing. I, yeah. Okay, I get it, you know. But that, 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 that's not what God has called you to in marriage, and that's not the ideal, and that's not finally, I think, what you want. And so the same with, with church. I mean, my church right now, we meet on a Zoom call. Mm. All of us, about, about 80 of us get together for Zoom on Sunday at 10, and, and there's certain conveniences to it. And uh, I'm grateful for God, to God for, for Zoom technology and the, the ability to do that. But it's not seeing with the people of God. It's not hugging brothers and sisters. Yeah. It's not sitting together uh, under the preach word and then and sitting around afterwards and talking about what we just heard. It's, it's not, certainly it's not the hospitality, but then it extends into the afternoon as we eat meals together and so forth. Yeah. Right? It's, 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 it's a simulcrum. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a shadow. It's a, it's, it's, People say, well, we're gathering. Well, we're not gathering the way the Bible means. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and so let's let's not sell ourselves or Scripture short. Yeah. So in those, in those ways, my, my church leaders, my church, uh, we're, we're careful not to say this is church. It's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're careful not to say, hey, we're gathered together here. So we're careful with our language. Yeah. And we're even kind of quick to diminish what we're doing. Friends, we know that this is an ideal but you know, thank God for this opportunity. But but we all look for so we we frequently remind the members on those Zoom calls and in conversations that we look forward uh, to being together again. This is a temper. Look, a broken ankle is still an ankle, but you got to put a crutch on it <laughs> yeah. but, and a cast on it. And yeah. and uh, and uh, but you look forward to the end of, of the cast and you look forward to the end of the crutch to throw them off so you can walk straight again. Yeah, sure. We know how much work there is in in running a church and in smaller, intimate settings, there's always so much work to do and a real opportunity for people to use their gifts, right? What's the, how important is it for somebody to find a way of serving and and plugging into a church and using their gift? Yeah, sure. The first thing I want to say, when you, when you come in and join a church, I think your first, your first, your first job is simply attending. Come, Come early, get to know people, stay late, get to know people, listen, uh, sit under the preaching of the word, let yourself uh, know and be known. So that really, your, your first ministry is the ministry of attendance. Do not mm. forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Mm. So I don't want to downplay the importance of just being there. Yeah. That is crucial. But second, yeah, you're not coming as a consumer. You're, you're coming as, as a giver. Uh, part of the problem in a consumer, you, you, know, you know, asked David, you asked earlier about how does culture infect us? Yeah. Well, it infect us. In fact, affects us. Uh, we show up as church for a performance. Hey, yeah. I hope there's a good band on stage. I hope he's a funny preacher. Yeah. Uh, I hope it's a good show. Right? I come for the show. Dim the lights. Stadium seating. Hey, that was a great show. I'm taking off. See you next week. Well, yeah. no, you're just a consumer. Stop that. That that the the true performers on Sunday morning is the congregation. Yeah. The best instrument is the people singing. Yeah. And we're, we're there to sing to one another, and we're to sing to the Lord. He's the audience, right? Mm-hmm. So you're showing up on Sunday, and, and, and you are engaging and preparing yourself to come, and you're engaging and uh, singing to other saints, looking for opportunities to have conversations with other saints. 
extend those conversations afterwards. It's not 90 minutes and then you're home all week. No, it's it, Sunday morning is equipping us for works of service yeah. and ministry to one another and outsiders the rest of the week. Yeah. Church is all week in that regard, yeah. right? We gather yeah. and then we scatter, but the gathering serves, equips us for the scattering. Yeah. Now, different people have different callings, different time up, you're in different seasons of life. Look, you know, you're a, you're a mom with three young children. You know, you can only do so much. I totally get it. I don't want to keep guilt on you for that. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's enough for you just to get to church. I totally, you know, yeah. praise the Lord you're there yeah. when those three kids are screaming at you at, yeah. at you know, 6 a.m. or whatever the case may be. <laughs> uh, where others of us, we have more time. So so a single woman in the church, what are you doing to help that mom of young children? Are, are you going to that young mom and are you saying, hey, hey, you've been a Christian longer than I have. I want to learn from you. But B, I'm not going to ask you to do that on my terms. I want to come to you. I'll do it on your terms. Do you have some laundry I can help you fold? Well, well, I ask you questions. Or do you need me to go to the store with you and for you? Uh, uh, so so I'm, I'm looking to use whatever resources I have to serve others, even as I disciple and be discipled by others. And, and different members of the church have different opportunities to do that. Yeah. What advice would you give to a pastor whose church has outgrown its building? Uh, number one, uh, you got to address the problem even before you get there. And you do that by developing a culture. I, and this is chapter three of my book. And some people have said this has been the most helpful chapter. Mm. Uh, a church must be Catholic, small c Catholic. That means we understand. We have to understand that my job as a pastor or a church member is not simply to grow our little restaurant. Right. We're going to try to beat out all the other restaurants. Rather, we're working with all the restaurants yeah. in the city to ward off starvation. Right, That's our yeah. job. Yeah. In other words, uh, we need to build up relationships with other churches and recognize that we're in partnerships with you know, my church, Chevrolet Baptist, is in partnership with Capitol Hill Baptist, which is partnership with Fourth Presbyterian, which is in partnership with McLean Bible, which is in partnership with McLean Presbyterian. So, so we're all working together. So if you're driving to my church and you're coming from, say, 30, 40 minutes away, I'm going to say, well, why are you driving that far? Don't you realize you have to drive past Capitol Hill Baptist to get here? Yeah. They have awesome preaching. They have a great membership. You should you should think about checking them out. And I'm going to do what I can to pray for other churches. I'm going to do, bring their pastors into our prayer service, and we're going to say, hey, what are your prayer needs? In other words, I want to cultivate in my congregation an understanding that we're all different platoons in the same battalion. We go from the restaurant to an army metaphor. We're all, we're all platoons in the same battalion, but we're fighting the same war. Mm-hmm. And so whether you finally locate my battalion, platoon or that guy's platoon, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. So my building is full. As I'm moving towards full, number one, I'm pushing people towards other churches. Mm. They don't have to grow in my church. Do I trust God's work in other churches, or do I only trust God's work in my own church? Mm. And if I only trust God's work in my church and not other churches, what's why am I so proud? Yeah. Right. So our church, <clears throat> go to the website, and you're going to see a page that says Other Healthy Sister Churches. Yeah. Uh, you come in through the door, and you'll see a brochure that says Other Nearby Churches. Yeah. So we're trying to cultivate that view. So that when the time comes, and look, I wrote this book. I wrote two-thirds of this book while a member of Capitol Hill Baptist. We had a 1,000 members. There was probably 1,100 people there on a Sunday morning. 
we were stuffed to the gills. Yeah. People were standing in the back. So look, been there, done that. I know, I know the challenges. And there were times people came, they couldn't find a seat, and they left. It really did happen. Yeah. There were times people drove around looking for a parking. They couldn't find it, so they left. That makes us sad. But do I trust that the Lord, in the long run, this is going to serve the cause of evangelism and serve the cause of Christianity in Washington, D.C., to make sure everybody is in their own assembly? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think the challenge is when we approach it with just short-term thinking, got to be somewhere this Sunday, we end up undermining the long-term what's good for the body of Christ and the, uh, the evangelistic witness of the gospel over time. Yeah. So bottom line, when your building is full, encourage people to go elsewhere, look for ways to plant, Think about building a bigger building, uh, if that's possible. In many cases, it's not. I get it. We couldn't on Capitol Hill. It's packed. It's urban. We were stuck. Um, <laughs> but we planted a bunch of churches, and we encouraged people to either go to other churches, and we brought in pastors and had them tell people about our, their churches and so forth. So there's plenty you can do. Yeah, sure. When, when partnering with other churches and looking to network with those churches, Jonathan, what what are your hills to die on and, and how do you do that in a safe way? Because, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of churches there, um, Mark Dever and David Platt's churches, aren't they? That, that, are, that are obviously known for great Bible teaching. If there's a pastor that, you know, is sitting in a, in a town or a city where, you know, a lot of the churches, there's question marks over, you know, whether or not it would be safe to send it, then there might not be the gospel being taught there. At what point do you draw the line and, and do you do you not send people? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna change from place to place. You have to have in mind theological triage. So you have first tier gospel issues, you have second tier church order issues, and then you have third tier. We can agree to disagree even be in the same church issues. Yeah. So first tier gospel issues. I mean, that's non-compromising. I'm not going to send somebody to a a liberal gospel denying church, yeah. resurrection denying, Bible truth denying. Yeah. Just yeah, I'm not going to send them to that church. No way. Yeah. Um, Okay, what about a second tier? <clears throat> I'm the only Baptist church here in this town, and there's only other Presbyterian churches, and though I disagree on Presbyterian polity, we share the same gospel. I love that pastor. He's a good preacher. Would I send somebody to that church? Well, <laughs> I prefer to send them to a Baptist church. I really would, because I think it's important. Uh, nonetheless, if I'm in, if I'm in, you know, I have a friend who's in Dubai, right? Yeah. And uh, you only have a limited number of churches. Uh, I'm going to encourage the Presbyterians to go to the Presbyterian church there in Dubai. Right? Yeah. So you just, yeah, I really have to make case by case judgments on these kinds of things. Now there might be, let's suppose it's a nearby Baptist church that technically preaches the same gospel, but they're just an unhealthy church. Mm. You know, the, mm. the people are divisive. They're, they're not evangelistic. They're, you, you don't really hear the Bible preached. You just hear moralistic stories preached. You know, I, I, I'm going to have a really hard, hard time sending somebody to that church. Yeah. I really will. Yeah. Uh, so all I can say on that is case-by-case case judgment and theological triage. Pay attention to it. Yeah, sure. Jonathan, you, you, you're a prolific writer. You've written lots. What, what's been the most important or, the, or, or your favorite piece that you've written that's out there right now? Asking me who's my favorite child. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like a dad loves all of his children. Come on. Yeah, that's my next um, question, Jonathan. <laughs> I, I mean, I think in some ways, in some ways, it might be my book on church membership. Yeah. Because I, I think that's a, a missing piece of of how Christ, Christians in, in your country and mine mm. 
and I've, I've lived in your country for a couple of years, so I know a little bit. Mm. Uh, obviously, I'm not homegrown, but the best I can tell, Christians in your country and mine tend to view tend to view evangel uh, the Christian discipleship individualistically. Mm. And for that reason, I think my book on church membership is a, a, a corrective and very helpful to say, no, the Christian life is to be lived as a church member. Yeah. I, I think my, my book called Don't Fire Your Church Members, which is on congreg- elder-led congregationalism, yeah. is, is, is a very useful, and it's a little more academic, uh, an important corrective to larger questions of polity, again, which, which people have ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. I mean, I could, I could, I could keep going down the list, but yeah. that would be arrogant. It would sound like you're showing off if you continue. Yeah, exactly. Are you yeah. working on anything at the moment? I've got a few things in the works. Um, I'm writing a little book on justice. What is justice in the mm. Bible? I'm writing, I'd like to write another. I've, I've written the first draft of a little booklet book on identity politics. Yeah. And I'd like to write another third. I'd like to write these three little, a little set of three: one on justice, one on identity politics, and one on authority. I've written the first draft of two of them. I need to round them out and and uh, get a get a publishing contract for those. That that's my next project. And then my, my I have another larger nine marks project on kind of a, a building healthy churches textbook. Yeah, I'll like spend the next few years working on. Who has had the biggest impact on your ministry so far? Aside from Jesus, Apostle Paul, <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of living living human beings, I mean, I would have to say it's Mark Dower. Mm. Right? I, I showed I showed up at Capitol Hill Baptist in 1996, uh, fr- fresh off uh, fresh from London. In fact, I, I did a, a master's degree there at the London School of Economics, and uh, moved to DC. And uh, a Christian friend of mine from England said to me, hey, when you get to D.C., you need to go to the Smart Devers Church. And um, I was living very much as a nominal Christian up until that point. I grew up in a Christian home, but my and my parents always taught me, the faithful to teach me the gospel, and I, I affirmed with my lips the gospel that my life in high school, college, grad school over there was characterized by a full-on pursuit of the world. And so when I moved into D.C., and my, my British friend Charlie said, you've got to join the Smart Devers Church, I said, okay, we'll check it out. Yeah. And uh, I joined the church because it meant I could move into the men's house for cheap rent on Capitol Hill. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, what, what, what I intended for economic gain, the Lord intended for good. And it was as a member of the church, I would say, in the late 90s that I crossed from death to life, repented and believed, and became a Christian. And it, it was just Mark's discipleship of me as a Christian through those years, and then vocationally, professionally, ecclesiologically sort of in the early 2000s, that's really as much as anything shaped my view and approach to the Christian life and, and certainly ecclesiology. Yeah, so good. Mark's really good at that, isn't he? I, I spoke to Greg Gilbert um, probably about six months ago, and, and he said a really similar uh-huh. thing as well, the way that he mentors people and disciples people. That is his that is his shtick, right? He, yeah. Lee Duncan calls him human Velcro, <laughs> and uh, he, 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 he really is that. <laughs> He just, uh, he always has a gaggle of young men around him that he's sort of discipling and training up and sending into the ministry. And people come to Capitol Hill Baptist because they hear about the preaching, but people stay at Capitol Hill Baptist because of the the culture of discipleship and hospitality and fellowship. So good. And and that impacts a lot of young men. A lot of young men move to Washington, women, but men in particular move to Washington, D.C. to get get, up. 
you know, some job on the hill or in the military. And then they come to the church and then little by little their their ambitions change. Their ambitions transform to kingdom ambitions. And then and then they see the example of Mark and the other elders as well, also just godly men, and say, Yeah, I, I think I want to do that. I, I think I want to give my life to that kind of service. And so lo and behold, you you've got tons of, of young men and, and in some cases women coming out of there and going into some form of vocational ministry. Yeah, yeah. What resources or books have had the biggest impact on you? I mean, I could say Mark Dever's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, just in shaping my kind of ecclesial worldview, obviously, is significant. I, I, I point to certain seminary books that were huge, whether Calvin's Institutes or oh, yeah. Stephen Dempster, Dominion and Dynasty, or Image of God by Anthony Hokema, or just... just uh, kind of the, the classes of Tom Schreiner and, and Steve Wallum, all of those things were crucial in shaping how I read the Bible and my theology in general. Uh, I, I point to different, uh, to my political theology, you know, I, I point to characters like Oliver O'Donovan, uh, in, in certain limited respects, Stanley Hauerwas and his works, uh, those things have impacted me. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably good for now. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed speaking to you today. Oh, thank you, David. I really, really appreciate the time. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Well, go to ninemarks.org, number nine, M-A-R-K-S dot org, uh, to learn more about uh, the ministry. Yeah. Uh, there's an About Us page with stuff I've written see all the stuff i've written to learn about that there's an info at nine marks email address if you if you want to get in touch with us and uh or you can follow me on twitter at jonathan lehman um that'd be another way yeah great stuff well i'll put the link to your twitter and to your uh, nine marks page in the description below as well as well as a link to your book jonathan thanks again for your time lovely speaking to you right yeah you too david thank you